You may be seated. It's, uh, it's great to see everybody here this morning. I appreciate the, the fellowship and, and love you all have for one another to want to greet each other so much. We, uh, this is an exciting Sunday at the church. 24 people baptized here today. It's very, very exciting to see what God's doing here and working in people's hearts and lives. And it's always an exciting Sunday. We know there's a lot of visitors here today because of that. And if you're here with someone who's baptized today, we rejoice with you in that. Uh, let me just uh, commit our time to the Lord and pray for these who've been baptized as well. Uh, Father, we come before you now and we thank you for Jesus um, who loved us and gave himself for us. Uh, Father, we thank you that in your great mercy, you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for each of these who've been baptized here today, uh, that they've taken their stand for Jesus Christ. Uh, they've been publicly identified with him as their, their Lord and their Savior. Uh, Father, I pray that you'll minister to them as they go about their daily lives and uh, that you'll help them to walk in that newness of life that they have in the Lord Jesus. And Father, for all of us, we live out that new life, that resurrection life that we have through Jesus Christ. Father, you tell us in the Psalms that the entrance of your word gives light. And Father, we need light from above. And so as we open your word now, we pray that you'd shine uh, your light into our hearts and transform us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Thank you for coming to spend this Lord's Day with us. Uh, we're continuing a study of the book of 2 Peter, so if uh, you'll take your Bible and turn there with me, we, we've titled this series, Know and Grow, and we're just working our way uh, week by week uh, through this uh, second letter uh, of, of Peter in, in the New Testament. So again, take your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we'll be beginning in verse 12. There's a story I heard about an Alaska bush pilot, and he took these guys who were going to go moose hunting out into a remote part of Alaska and dropped them off there. But he told them when he left them, he said, you can only bring one moose back, so don't be bringing back two or three moose. He said, this is a one moose plane. So he leaves and flies off, and a week later he comes back, and sure enough, these guys have got two moose laying there to take out with them. And he says, look, I told you before I left, I can only take one moose. I'm not going to be able to take two of them. And they said, well, you know, we had a pilot named, last year named Joe, and uh, he let us take two moose. Are you not as good a pilot as he is? Well, it's kind of a front to the guy's pride. So we said, well, okay, put both of them on here, and we'll, uh, we'll take off. So they, they get these two moose strapped on the plane, and they take off, and uh, they clear the water, and they make it a little bit above the tree line and, and get a little bit of altitude, but eventually it's just not enough, and they crash into the forest there, and the plane is littered debris everywhere. Uh, fortunately, all three of the men live, and uh, the two hunters get out and are talking to one another. And one of them says to the other one, where are we? And the guy looked around at the woods and the lake and everything around him, and he says, well, he says, I think we're about a quarter of a mile further than we were last year. <laughs> now, that's God's will for all of us. Uh, that we make it a little bit further than we did last year, if you will. That, we, that we're making spiritual progress. Uh, that we're growing in our spiritual lives. And that's what we've been looking at the last few weeks in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 11. That's one long sentence in the Greek, and it's about spiritual growth. We've looked at that the last few weeks. If you remember, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, it's all about the riches and the resources that we have as God's people to be growing. Um, it's, uh, it's all the, the resources he's given to us. In fact, in verse 3, it says God's given us everything we need to live a godly life. Then in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 1, he tells the responsibility that we have to appropriate those riches to be growing. 
that you and I have to add maximum effort to the resources God has given us, and he lists this chain of virtues that we're to see growing in our spiritual lives. And then last time, we looked at verses 8 through 11, which gives three results of spiritual growth. If you're growing spiritually, you'll be useful to God, you'll have assurance of your salvation, and then down in verse 11, where we left off last time, you'll have future rewards. You'll have an abundant entrance someday into the kingdom um, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 that we've looked at the last few weeks. Now, here in a couple weeks, we're going to get into chapter 2 of 2 Peter, where Peter's going to take on some false teachers who had infiltrated the churches he's writing to. But between the passage about spiritual growth and Peter's message about these seducers and these false teachers... Peter gives a section here in chapter 1, verses 12 to 21, that's kind of a bridge or a transition, or we might call it kind of a hinge passage. It kind of looks back and it looks forward. And this section, 1 Peter 1, 21 to 20, is about the reliability of the Bible, of the Word of God. And so this kind of hinge section between talking about spiritual growth and talking about false teachers is there because if we're going to grow spiritually and we're going to combat false teaching, we have to be sure of our source. We have to have a reliable source. We have to know that it's sure and it's certain. And so that's what this section of the book is about. Peter's telling us, look, we need a fixed point. We need a a north star to guide us. We need a a sure source of truth. And so that's what Peter wants us to know. So let me read uh, beginning in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 uh, through verse 19. Therefore, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things. And of course, the, the these things are what he's been talking about in the first 11 verses. Even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place till the day dawns and the morning star rises um, in our hearts." Well, may the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts here this morning. What I see in our text here this morning are two main points to support the reliability of God's revelation to us in the Bible. I call this the testament and the transfiguration. In verses 12 to 15, we have Peter's testament. And in verses 16 to 19, he's going to talk about an event called the transfiguration. So verses 12 to 15 is kind of Peter's last will and testament. This is Peter's legacy to the church. Peter knows he's not going to be alive much longer. I mean, he knows his death is imminent. That's what he says down in verse 14. The laying aside of my earthly dwelling um, is imminent. So these are his last words or his swan song. Now, what is Peter's burden at this time in his life? What is on the heart of Peter as he faces death? 
Now think about this. The great apostle Peter, what's on his mind as he's getting ready to die is he wants to remind these believers of things they already know. He wants to ground them in the truth that they already know. That's what he says here in verse 12. I want to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. So Peter wants to ground them in the truth. And to me, this is profound for us and very instructive. The final great message of the apostle is to remind people of things they already know. Now, I know a lot of you come to church, and sometimes I'm preaching, and you'll say, well, I already know about that. It's like, well, that's good. We're going to talk about it again, right? We need to be reminded of it. And I'm struck myself how often I study the Bible, and I come to a passage of Scripture, and I begin to read it, and I think, you know, I haven't looked at that or thought about that in two or three years, and I've kind of forgotten about that and its importance to my spiritual life. So the final great message of the apostles to remind them of things they already know. And again, a lot of people today, a lot of believers are always focused on trying to get something new, some new truth or some new revelation, uh, some sensational new kind of ear-tickling message. But we learn here from Peter that his legacy is to remind us of truth we already know and to drive it deeper and deeper into our spirit. In fact, you'll notice he uses the word remind you in verse 12. Verse 13, I considered as long as I'm in this dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Down in verse 15, that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. We all need repetition. We're we're prone to forget. I like the story of two couples that were spending some time together. And the two men were sitting in a room. Their wives were in the next room. One of the men said to the other one, he says, I've been taking this really good memory course. And the guy said, well, uh, that's great. He says, how's it going? He says, well, he says, it's wonderful. They're teaching me all the latest and best techniques. The guy says, well, what's the name of the course? I might want to take it. Well, the guy went blank, and he couldn't remember the name of it. And uh, then a smile came across his face. He said, what do you call that red flower with long stem and, and thorns on it? And the guy said, you mean a rose? And he said, yeah, that's it. And he turned to his wife and he says, Rose, what's the name of that memory course I took a while back? That's about how bad it's getting for me sometimes, I have to admit. But look, forgetfulness is natural. We all need reminders. And Peter here has a heightened sense of urgency because he's about to die. He knows his days are numbered. He says in in verse 13, I'm going to lay aside this earthly dwelling. In verse 14, knowing the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. The earthly dwelling there literally just means a tent. Peter says, look, I'm going to fold up my tent here before long and move on. Actually, the word laying aside there in verse 14 is a a word that's used of taking off clothes. But it's fitting here of a tent that he's going to take the tent down. And he's going to move on. And you know, the Bible speaks often of our earthly body as a tent. Uh, The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. He says, look, this is just a tent we live in now. Someday when we die, we're going to get a building from God, a permanent building, our new body. But in the meantime, we groan in these bodies in which we live. Back in Isaiah 38, verse 12, Isaiah says, Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and it's removed from me. It's a picture of of moving on in death for a believer. There's a great quote I got years ago from Chuck Swindoll about our bodies being a tent. 
He says this, a tent is a temporary place to dwell. It's fun to camp in a tent, but let's face it, it's not home. There's no fireplace, no cozy chair, no soft bed. It's cold in the winter, hot in the summer, and leaky when it rains. And the older it gets, the more it sags. Eventually it frays and tears and finally rots. No wonder we groan. Physicians make their living by listening to groaning tents. An orthopedic surgeon tries to keep the tent pegs from pulling loose. A dermatologist tries to keep the canvas in good shape. And general practitioners, practitioners are always stitching and patching us up. We groan because we're weary, rain-soaked campers longing for home. But when we shed this earthly tent from our shoulders, we'll not be left naked and shivering. We'll be clothed with immortality like a huge down comforter. Life, not death, will swallow us up. And that's the picture that Peter gives here, like a tent that's going to be taken down. He's going to move on. Peter also speaks of his death as a departure. Notice he says in verse 14, knowing the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. In verse 15, as I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. Uh, the Greek word there is the word exodus, and it literally means a way out. And when you go, uh, if you fly ever on Greek airlines, you'll notice above the exits, it has the word exodus there uh, in, in the Greek language. It's a way out. And he says here that Death for a believer is just a way out. It's a way out of this world um, into the next world. So death for a believer isn't the end. We just exit this life and we enter into the eternal life. So for Peter, he knows it's about time to pull up the stakes and move on. But he's not passing out of existence, but he's simply packing up and moving to another place. Now, one thing I just want to pause and mention here for a moment, just as kind of a way of application, is Peter's getting old here. Commentators differ, uh, differ on how old Peter is. Everybody agrees he's at least in his late 60s. Some people think he's as old as 75 at this time. Uh, but he's about to die, and he knows he's about to die. He's probably writing this from prison. But look at this man's passion. He may be in his mid-70s, but he's a passionate man, and he's passionate about the truth. The driving passion of his life is to see the truth of God passed on to others and to see other people growing. He says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And let me just say this, you can't get somebody else stirred up if you're not stirred up about something. And Peter is a man who's passionate and I think this is a good thing for all of the, the senior saints here today to think about. Now, I won't put an age on that. You can decide if you're in that category or not. But for senior saints to really pause and ask ourselves, what is our passion in life? You have a man who's 75 years of age. He says, the passion of my life is to remind you of these things that you've been established in in the truth, and that you'll be able to bring these things to mind after I'm gone. Uh, you and I need to be people who are passionate and stirred up about uh, the things of God. It needs to be true in our younger days. It needs to be true no matter how old we are. Now, Peter here says that uh, he's going to die soon. His death's imminent. Well, how does Peter know his death is imminent? This probably relates back to a story in, in John chapter 21, because Peter says here, my death is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now, it's possible that Jesus gave Peter some special revelation about his impending death, but this probably looks back to John 21. 
Remember, uh, Peter has denied Jesus three times. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus has breakfast with his disciples there on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? They correspond to the three denials. Peter asks him three times, uh, Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Jesus tells Peter, then feed my sheep. And of course, that's what Peter's doing really as he's writing this book of 2 Peter. But in that whole conversation, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, when you grow old, you, uh, you will stretch out your hands and someone will gird you and take you where you do not wish to go. He says, Peter, when you get old, you're going to stretch out your hands and other people are going to gird you and they're going to take you where you do not want to go. And it's looking at a, a death by crucifixion as his arms are stretched out. And then Jesus went on and clarified it. And it says, this Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. So Peter in his death is going to glorify God. He's going to be stretched out when he's old and he's going to be crucified. And Peter knows that he's old now. He's probably imprisoned. He knows his death um, is imminent. And church tradition tells us that Peter and his wife were both crucified in Rome. His wife was crucified first. Now capture this scene in your mind. Maybe a 75-year-old man with his wife there, probably at least around 70 years of age. And <clears throat> as they lead her away, as long as she can hear his voice as they're taking her away, church tradition tells us Peter was crying out, Remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. She's taken away and crucified, and then Peter is taken away later. And he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner um, as his Lord. So these are words here that we're reading from a dying man. Peter's going to die, and he knows he's going to die, but he wants his words to live on. So this letter is from a man facing imminent death, a, a, a brutal death. So he's not messing around. I mean, he's still standing strong. There's no wavering in him. And he reminds us here of the truth. And you think about this. If, if all this was a big hoax and a big, uh, it was all fake, this would have been the time when they're hauling your wife off to say, you know what, I'm ready to recant this whole thing. I didn't really see the Lord risen. This whole thing is nothing but a big hoax. But Peter and his wife go to brutal, cruel death uh, because they've trusted in, in the person and the message of our Lord Jesus. So Peter's reminding them of the truth, and he wants us to know that we have a reliable source of truth to build our lives on and to die by. And then notice verse 15, and then we'll move on. But he says, I'll be diligent that at any time after my departure, you can call these things to mind. Some people believe that Peter here is referring to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, because Peter probably was Mark's uh, really source of information for the gospel of Mark. So some believe that he's talking about the gospel of Mark that will be left behind that they can continue to read. My view is that he's talking here about this book that we're reading, the book of 2 Peter. He's saying, look, I'm going to be diligent so that after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. And it's the book that we have here that he's given to us in 2 Peter that allows us to constantly remember these things that Peter's written. Now, somebody might ask at this point, well, Peter, how do we know for sure that this is the truth? How can we know for sure what you're telling us is really true? And that brings us in verse 16 to the transfiguration. Now, false teachers that Peter's facing here in writing this book denied that Jesus was coming back. Uh, they denied a final judgment. They denied a future accountability. 
And because of that, they, they lived very immoral lives because if Jesus isn't coming back and there's no final judgment and no accountability, then it really doesn't matter how you live. So these false teachers rejected the teaching of the apostles. They rejected God's word as authoritative. Now, Peter's going to pick this up later over in chapter 3. Notice in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Know this first of all, in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts. And they'll be saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues just as it was from the beginning. So Peter's going to take this on directly over in chapter 3. But these are mockers and scoffers who ridicule the idea of a literal second coming of Jesus. And so Peter here in verse 16 says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales whenever we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. He says, look, the stuff we're telling you is not made up. These aren't just a bunch of, you know, concocted, cleverly invented stories. Uh, the word tales there, some of your translations may have fables. I mean, it's the Greek word, that we, the word muthos. We get the word myth from it. It says, look, these aren't just a bunch of concocted or made-up myths. You know, you know, Greeks and Romans had all kinds of mythology. I used to, to enjoy reading that when I was in school, you know, all the stories about Hercules and Zeus and Pandora and Medusa and all their mythology. They, they considered that to be true. But Peter says, look, what we're telling you, it's not a bunch of made-up legends and fables and myths. Again, these false teachers were rejecting the coming of Christ as just kind of a fabricated fairy tale future, just kind of another story, you know, like the cow jumped over the moon or something like that. And of course, the problem was the delay. Christ now had been gone to heaven for 30 years. He hadn't come back. And so because of the delay, they denied uh, that he was ever going to come back at all. And so to refute their charge that the apostles' teaching was unreliable, Peter recounts the most supernatural event in the life of Jesus. And that event is known as the transfiguration. The transfiguration. Now, many liturgical calendars, on many of the liturgical calendars, um, this is Transfiguration Sunday. Um, it's the last Sunday before uh, the beginning of Lent. Now, I didn't plan it out this way, but it worked out. We're on the liturgical calendar today. So in many places, uh, this is Transfiguration Sunday. Now, the transfiguration of Jesus is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, although none of them were eyewitnesses of it. And here in 2 Peter chapter 1 is the only explicit mention of the transfiguration in the New Testament outside the Gospels. You say, well, why does Peter refer to the transfiguration? Why single out that event? The reason he singles it out is the transfiguration was a preview of the second coming, which these false teachers denied. One of the major purposes of the book of 2 Peter is to provide the believers with certainty about the second coming of Christ. And he wants us to know that that event is not based on myth, and neither are the other events in the life of Jesus. It's based on historical reality. And those of you here that are younger, young people that are out there getting bombarded with all the, the skepticism out there in our culture, the Bible and the stories it tells and the narratives that are found in it in the Gospels are based on sober historical reality. They're not fairy tales. Now let's go back to Matthew 17. Let me show you a little bit about this event of the transfiguration that Peter refers to. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. 
Now, I know I say that about a lot of stories, but this, this really is a, a great one here. Matthew chapter 17. Now, go back at the end of chapter 16 to get the, the running context. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So I'm coming back, and there's going to be a time of accountability. And then he says, truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who won't taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So some of you here listening to me, you disciples, you're not going to die until you see second coming glory. Now look at chapter 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. That's the preview of the second coming. When he said, some of you here aren't going to die till you see the Son of Man coming in glory, the transfiguration six days later was a preview of the second coming. It was a fulfillment of that statement that they would see a second coming glory of the Lord Jesus. Now, I like to call this section the midnight sun, S-O-N. Uh, this probably happens in October of AD, 33, of AD 32, about six months before Jesus dies. And this probably happens at night. Um, we know that because it took most of the day to get to the mountain. Uh, we know that the disciples, when they're there with Jesus, they fall asleep. And Luke's account tells us they came down the next day. So we know they spent the night there, so it, it, it's nighttime. And Jesus takes Peter and James and John with him up there to the mountain, the, the three men in the inner circle. And he takes three of them because in the Old Testament it says that every matter is confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now it says he takes them up to a high mountain. Um, some people think it's Mount Tabor. That's the traditional side in Israel. There's actually a beautiful church built there to commemorate this event. But I take it that it's Mount Hermon up in the north. It's 9,000 feet tall. And now we're going to be leaving next week. A lot of you are going to be going to Israel with us. And we're going to be seeing these places. Just thinking about it. It's getting me fired up here this morning. But, uh, but Peter calls this, in 2 Peter chapter 1, the sacred mountain. And I don't think Mount Hermon was sacred in any way other than the fact that the transfiguration happened there made it sacred. I think it's what he's saying. It's the, the sacred of the holy mountain. And the climb up there probably would take in the better part of a day. They probably didn't go all the way to the top, the 9,000 feet above sea level. They probably stopped at some point along the mountain, but it would have taken some time to get there. And Luke's account of the story tells us they went up on the mountain to pray. And as nightfall came and they continued to pray, the three disciples dozed off. But Jesus kept praying. And then something astounding occurred in verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. Now, the word literally is the word metamorphosed. Jesus underwent a metamorphosis. A word's only found four times in the New Testament. And it means to change from one form to another. And it's a change on the outside that comes from the inside. It's an intrinsic change. It came from inside Jesus. And it says he began to shine like the sun in its strength. That's nighttime on Mount Hermon. And this shining comes from inside the Lord Jesus. It's not a reflected glory. It's a glory that's radiating out of his person. His intrinsic glory blazes through the sackcloth of his humanity. 
And to me, this is one of the clearest demonstrations and verifications of the deity of Jesus in the Bible. He's shining like the sun in its strength, radiating glory coming from his person. It's the only time in his earthly ministry when Jesus allowed his essential glory to shine through. It's as if he slipped back to his pre-human glory. It's It's a breathtaking display of the majesty of Jesus. The veil of his humanity was drawn back, revealing his divine glory. It's the same glory that was uh, lighting up Mount Sinai with consuming fire when Moses got the law. It's the same glory, that the pillar of fire that, that was in the, the, the tabernacle and in the temple. It's the same glory that later would stun uh, Saul on the road to Damascus and change his life forever. Jesus stands there as the midnight sun blazing in the blackness of the night. If you want to see how bright the light was, over near the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 23, when it talks about the new creation, the new heaven, and the new earth, it says there's not going to be any sun, there's not going to be any moon, because it says there, the lamp is the lamb. Jesus himself will radiate and light all of the new heaven and the new earth in his person. And it had been 600 years since anybody had seen the Shekinah glory of God. Remember when the the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, the glory of God departed from Solomon's temple before it was destroyed, and no one had seen the glory of God for 600 years. And there, uh, Peter, James, and John are there, and it's like this mountain is transformed into a holy of holies. And then suddenly, Moses and Elijah appear there with Jesus. You say, well, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham or David or Isaiah? Probably because Moses and Elijah embody the Old Testament like no one else. Moses embodies the law and Elijah embodies the prophets. So we have the Old Testament here meeting its Messiah. I think these two men, Moses and Elijah, later on in Revelation 11 in the end times will be the two witnesses there. But certainly this is an illustration of bodily resurrection and life after death because Moses had been dead for 1,400 years. Elijah had been caught up without dying 900 years before this, yet they're still alive. They're still conscious. And it's a picture of what will happen to us as well someday. We'll be raised. We live on when we leave this life. Now, some have often wondered, well, how did Peter um, know that it was Elijah and Moses? Because he says, let's build three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I don't think he had name tags on or anything. He identified who they were. How did he know? That may be a picture of what it's going to be like in the future when we get to heaven. We'll just know people intuitively. When we see someone, we'll, we'll know immediately who they are. So people often ask, well, will we know one another in heaven? We certainly will. In fact, we'll even know people that we didn't know here on earth. We're going to know much more than we know here in this life. Now, with all this going on, Luke's gospel tells us at about this time, the three disciples wake up and see this stunning scene. And Matthew 17, verse 3 says, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. And Luke's gospel tells us what they were talking about. It says they were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his exodus. Remember, same word Peter just used about his death. It's Jesus' death. So Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his coming death. Now, what a conversation that must have been to be there and listen to Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about Jesus' coming death. 
And you can be sure Moses and Elijah had a great interest in Jesus' death because their own redemption rested on the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God. So they're highly interested in the exodus, the the departure, the death of Jesus, because their own redemption is dependent upon it. Now, Peter and James and John have been fast asleep. And that gives me a lot of comfort because this was the greatest conference in Bible in, in history. And the disciples fell asleep. So it even happened to Jesus that people fell asleep with him. So if it happened to him, I shouldn't get too discouraged, I guess. But Peter wakes up with the other two, and they see this this spectacle, the midnight sun glowing in the darkness, like the sun in its strength. And Peter, true to his character, starts running his mouth before he gets his brain cranked up. And somebody said there's two kinds of people in the world, those who have something to say and those who have to say something. And Peter's kind of that latter group. So he says, Lord, let's build three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. I like Luke's account. In Luke 9.33, he says, Peter, not realizing what he was saying. So Peter doesn't even know what he's talking about. And Mark says he spoke out of fear. But he says in verse 4 here, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Now, that's the greatest understatement in all of human history. It's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, three condos, if you will, here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So Peter wants to make this situation permanent. He wants to prolong the glory and have them stay there permanently. I think it's also possible that Peter believed the kingdom had arrived because he says, build three tabernacles. And of course, if it's October when this is happening, around the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles anticipated the coming Messiah and his kingdom. So it may be that Peter's thinking here, the kingdom has come, and what Tabernacles has anticipated is here. So he wants to build these three tabernacles. The problem, though, with his suggestion is he puts Jesus on the same level with Moses and Elijah. But one for Moses, one for Jesus, one for Elijah. The sense of equality is the problem with Peter's suggestion. Now, verse 5 says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm pleased. Listen to him. And Peter recounts this over in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the third time God spoke from heaven uh, during the ministry of Jesus. He did it at his baptism, here at the transfiguration, and then in John 12. But I love this. Jesus, the, the, the Father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's basically saying, Peter, be quiet. Listen to him. Jesus is now God's spokesman. It's not Elijah or Moses or anybody else. He's God's spokesman. And then notice in verse 7, Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up. And do not be afraid. In verse 7, it says they fell down to the ground. Or verse 6, they're terrified. They're on their faces. And Jesus tells them to get up and not be afraid. And it says, lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. In a split second of time, suddenly everything goes back to normal. The cloud vanished. The, the, the glory cloud of God's presence. The voice went silent. Elijah and Moses disappear, and Christ's glory comes back in, if you will, and is veiled again. And these men look up, and all they see is Jesus against the the backdrop of the midnight starlit sky. Now, that's something that Peter never, ever, ever got over because this event was a preview of the second coming. That's what he says at the end of chapter 16. Some of you here 
not going to die until you see the Son of Man coming in glory. Six days later, he takes him up to the mountain, and he's transfigured before them. The, the transfiguration is a sneak peek of the second coming of Christ. It's a foretaste of the future. It's a, a glimpse of glory. You see, all the central players are there. Jesus is there, pictured in, in glory like the returning king. Moses and Elijah are with him, picturing the saints who'll return with him at his coming. And Peter and James and John picture living saints who'll be on the earth when Jesus comes. So it's just like a miniature picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Peter never forgot this. He said, we didn't tell you cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the glory of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle John never got over it. He was there too. What does he say in John 1.14? We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Peter's an ear witness and he's an eyewitness to what happened. He saw it and he heard the majestic voice from on high. So this is no fable or myth. And Peter's willing to die rather than to deny what he's seen and what he's heard. And Peter is not dying for a myth. He's dying for majesty. And he's willing to die for that. And so over in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is saying in effect, look, we aren't making this up. We have already seen what the second coming is going to be like. We heard the voice of God himself. It's as if Peter's saying, look, we've already seen the, the, the preview. We've already seen the trailer at the movie theater. Now we know uh, what's coming. So the second coming is sure, and what we believe is certain. It's rock-solid testimony. Now, Peter in verse 19, and we won't look at this whole verse. We'll pick up here next time. But in verse 19, Peter, it's like he's almost saying, just in case you don't believe me, look at the Scriptures. We have the prophetic word more sure through which you do well to pay attention. Now, I don't think Peter here is saying that the, that the word is more sure than the transfiguration because the transfiguration was an experience given to him by God and it's recorded in the Bible. But what he's saying is the transfiguration gave added certainty or corroboration to what the Bible had already said. And so he's saying to us, it's a sure word. The Bible validates that it's true. And again, you all have heard me say this a lot of times, but there are a thousand prophecies in the Bible and 500 of them have been literally fulfilled. The Bible's self-authenticating. We have a sure word of prophecy to which we do well to take heed. In fact, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said it like this, there's no better book with which to defend the Bible than the Bible itself. That's what Peter's saying here. We have the prophetic word that's more sure to which you do well to take heed. So look, what we believe is not a bunch of fairy tales. These aren't children's bedtime stories. Um, this isn't, you know, again, cow jumped over the moon kind of stuff. It's not made up and concocted. You and I can build our lives on it. We can listen to a, a dying man dying for what he believes. We can build our marriages upon uh, the Word of God. We can build our families on it. Um, by God's grace, we, we, we hope to build this, keep building this church upon it. We can live by it and we can die by it. We can trust the sure word of God. Look, you can trust God's word this morning about your salvation. In fact, you can trust God's word about your sinful condition. The, the Bible says we're, we're lost without Jesus Christ. There's no hope without him. The Bible's sure when it tells us that. We can also be sure when it tells us that 
God will save all who come to faith in Jesus Christ and believe in him, just like all these who were baptized this morning. What did Jesus say in John 5, 24? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, shall not come into judgment, but's passed from death to life. That's God's word. It's a sure word. If you trust Christ, you'll never come into judgment. God will give you eternal life. We can trust God's word about our salvation. We can trust God's word about how to live life. We can trust God's word about the second coming. Peter's already seen the trailer of it. We can trust him about the life to come. We can trust uh, the word of God. Years ago, um, it's been, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now, I had the opportunity to go out and give a commencement address at Southern California Seminary. It's a real blessing because the seminary is right across from the church where David Jeremiah is the pastor. So they had the commencement ceremony in that church. So I got to be in the pulpit there where David Jeremiah preaches. And it's massive, by the way. It's like an altar up there. It's a, a huge podium. But I got the opportunity to do, give that commencement address. And of all the things they told me before I, I got up there to do the address, the most important thing was when you finish. I mean, at least 20 different people told me, now, here's when you got to finish. You got to finish right on time. And it's, it was so much so that they had somebody down like on the first row right there, and they had cards. And when there was five minutes left, they put up five. And there was three, they put up three. When it was two, they put up two. One, they put up one. 30 seconds, they put up thir- uh, 0.30. And like at zero, you had, you had to be done. This thing was like, you know, just ride on schedule. And so, I mean, you know, you're, you're you know, anxious enough, you know, speaking in front of everybody, if they start flashing these cards down here at you and you know you got to be finished. So one of the guys told me a story um, about a, a commencement a couple of years earlier when E.V. Hill was the commencement speaker. Now, many of you may know, I've heard E.V. Hill, tremendous uh, black pastor from, from the Los Angeles area, wonderful man of God, unbelievable speaker and orator. And he was known, though, to go really long when he would speak. He, you know, the time didn't matter. He'd speak for two hours if he wanted to. So they gave him these clear directions about when he was supposed to be finished. And they just, you know, highlighted, emphasized to him. So he said, whenever he got up there and got going, he said, you know, they, they put up the three-minute sign from the stop. And he said, you know, this, he just, it's still just a torrent. And uh, the two-minute sign comes up. No sign is slowing down. The one-minute sign comes up. He's just going, and they're just sitting there thinking, yeah, he's going to go on. This, you know, we're not going to be on time. And the 30-second sign comes up, and he's, just, he's still just going, and they, they realize they're, they're just worried to death. But finally, he says probably about 10 seconds before they put up the, ze- the sign zero, though E.V. Hill, his sermon had been about the Bible and how these people graduating from this seminary needed to, to commit their lives to the Word of God. And again, I won't be able to do it like he did it, but Olivi Hill, he, he held up his Bible and he started yelling out, the book, the book, the book. And then he threw it down and he said, don't adjust it, just trust it. And he went and sat down right as they put the zero up. I mean, he, just a perfect <laughs> landing right on time. And he said, man, that guy knew how to bring it to an end. But I liked the story just because I was getting ready to speak and I thought it was, it was an interesting story. But I, I love that statement, though. What a, what a way to... to, to to put in a capsule what we've said this morning. The book, the book, the book. Don't adjust it, just trust it. That's what Peter's telling us here this morning. And it's a reliable word for salvation, for marriage, for family, for the church, for life, uh, for the life to come. May God help us uh, to trust it and to believe in it and to live it out in our daily lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we have a sure word from you, that we have a light that shines into the darkness, 
And Father, we need that light today. You know we need it desperately in this dark world in which we live. And Father, I thank you that all of the, us here today who know Christ as our Savior, we don't follow a myth. We follow majesty. We have a fixed point to live by. We have a north star to guide us. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have that Jesus Christ is coming again, that he can come at any moment. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to be ready and to live out the truth of your word as we wait and to be growing more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ as we give heed to the sure word that you've given to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.